Greetings and salutations. I'm Vlad Tenev, CEO and co-founder of Robinhood, and this is Under the Hood. I got my ears pierced on my 15th birthday, and uh, I went over to my friend's house, and I was talking to his dad just about my future and what I want to do after high school and stuff like that. And he was like, yo, I'm just let you know right now, if you want to go into finance, you should probably take your earrings out now and let the holes close up because you're already a black kid. Like they're looking for any reason to disqualify you. And if you have earrings that can be deemed as unprofessional or whatever. So I took them out that day and then I woke up the next day and I was like, why the fuck would I want to spend the rest of my life working a job where I can't be who I want to be. And I think that's why I'm so attracted now to music and entrepreneurship and acting in more creative pursuits. In this episode, we'll be speaking with 24K Golden, a San Francisco native who, at just 20 years old, has become a multi-platinum music phenomenon with a unique sound that straddles genres. Golden's interests are as multifaceted as the music he creates. On track to become a hedge fund manager with a full ride to USC, he switched paths to fulfill his dreams. Now, at the age of 20, with several top-ranking songs under his belt, Golden is bringing an entrepreneurial mindset to his flourishing music career. Here, we speak about his years growing up in San Francisco, his incredible rise through the pandemic, and why he believes in building financial literacy for everyone. So my real name is Golden, because I was born in the year 2000, the year of the Golden Dragon, which happens only every 60 years on the Chinese Zodiac. So got that name, my parents' best birthday gift I ever got. And um, when I started making music, I was just putting it out under that name. I was like, Golden is pretty unique. There's no other rappers named Golden, so that should be fine, right? But what I failed to realize was that Everything else was named Golden. There's the Golden State Warriors, you know, there's Golden Dragon Chinese Restaurant, there's there's this, there's that. Whenever you searched Golden on Google, you weren't going to get me, you were going to get a million other things, and I'd probably be on page like 184 at a Google search thing, and no one's going that far. So I realized I had to add something to it to make it just more unique and to stand out better for search engine optimization purposes. I came to 24K because 24K in the jewelry world is the most pure form of gold. It's not cut. And me being an artist and making music, that's the most pure form of golden. Oh, that sounds great. It was a digital marketing strategy in a way. You wanted to optimize your search engine results. Yeah, (laughs) I guess you could say that. Even better. Yeah, you got to make it better. The 24 karat really takes it up a notch. Well, you've seen, obviously, incredible success in your music career and you're only just 20 years old and every time I turn on the radio your music is on there and I also read a little bit about your interest in business and entrepreneurship and that you know you've kind of been hustling from a young age so I was hoping maybe you'd share a little bit about your earliest hustles and how you got into business. Man I remember I was the kid that was selling candy out the backpack at school. I was restoring beat up Jordans and flipping them for more. I was doing the whole Supreme bots and all those kind of things. Just whatever way I could get my hand on something that could be sold for more money, I would do it. So reselling was super big for me. Whether it was candy, sneakers, whatever. I was customizing people's Jordans and getting creative with it, using that as an outlet for my creativity. What else did I do? Did you make burn CDs and resell them or was that a little bit before your time? 
Nah, because at that point, once I was in middle school, you could just search the name of the song and then free MP3 download and boom, you're out of here. Yeah, yeah. Piracy was at an all-time high. Yeah. When I was a kid, my first entrepreneurial venture was I had a friend in, he was in fourth grade. I was in first grade and we sold tools to our neighbors. So like little hammers and saws and stuff. Where did you get them from? We got them from our parents. So you stole your parents' tools and sold it to your neighbors. Yeah. My friend would steal them from his dad. And I don't know why I was tagging along in the venture, but I was kind of the uh, marketing person, I guess. His little first grade friend that just wanted to tag along, but taught me a lot about business. Yeah. He was just the cute face to get them to give you a little extra money, right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we made very much money, maybe like five or $10 or something. Did he ever get caught for stealing the tools? I think his dad figured out that, well, it started out being tools that weren't very useful. So the old rusty hammers and stuff, but once we sold those, it started getting into more and more important tools that maybe he eventually started missing. And then I came over one day and the little wooden lemonade stand for tools was disassembled. And then we started mowing lawns. So we went to something a little bit more uncontroversial. Yeah, that's not a bad hustle, though. I hear, like, landscaping, you can make a lot of money if you scale it up right. Yeah, yeah, cool. And what were some of your musical inspirations growing up? I listened to everything. I was listening to Michael Jackson. I was listening to Lauryn Hill. I was listening to Kanye, T-Pain, Black Eyed Peas, Drake, of course, ASAP Rocky. This is, like, all going into middle school. Future, Young Thug but a lot of music kind of all over the place. Yeah, and were you were you mostly streaming and like digital or did you get into any physical media as well? So, I mean, my mom, she's a music junkie. Like she has more songs on her iTunes library than probably she could listen to in her lifetime. And what she would do is we'd go to the library and we'd pick out CDs because the library would, they'd order all the new CDs that would come out. Oh, yeah. And so she'd get all the newest music and then bring it home, burn it on the computer, and then go and return the CDs. So I could listen to whatever I want through the iTunes library. And then once I got my first phone in sixth grade, that's when I just started downloading stuff onto my phone off the internet. Are you into vinyl? Are you a big vinyl fan? I can't remember the last time I listened to music on vinyl. Everybody tells me it's a great experience and it has a different type of texture, but I haven't even gotten into that yet. That's something I'd be interested in checking out. You know what's really interesting? Something that I just recently found out. There's these charts of different mediums for music. So you can look at like, I think it was 70s, 80s, up until like 1990, it was pretty much all vinyl accounted for nearly all of the sales. And then you had cassette takeover briefly. So like, I don't know if you really remember, this was definitely before you were born, but my first music player was a Walkman. And I was like super happy when I got my Walkman and I would have my tapes. I think the first tape I got was Green Day, maybe Dookie by Green Day. And you'd have tapes that were probably only leading for a couple of years. Then CDs kind of took over. And then obviously pay to download music and streaming completely obliterated CDs. But you saw this interesting thing where like 2005 or I think it was 2007, vinyl had gone to zero. It, it went to like zero by the year 2000. And 2007, it started like showing up again. And, and then it surpassed CDs. And vinyl for the past 10 years or something has been growing 50% year over year. 
So now vinyl sales are kind of at the same level that they were back in 1989 or 1990. So it's really interesting how it's like people are now rediscovering it. And, you know, with CDs, downloadable and streaming is better than it in every way. But there is something that gets lost that people want to rediscover with, like you said, the texture and just the experience of getting almost this work of art and just putting it in your record player. It's kind of like film photos, you know, making a comeback because oh, yeah. everyone used to shoot on film and then digital came out and it's like, well, I could take a hundred pictures in 30 seconds. Why would I spend time with this film thing and getting it developed and maybe it'll mess up? But especially over the past 10 years, I just noticed like a huge resurgence in filming. Me personally, for the same reason, I like the texture, I like the effects that film gives you that sometimes digital just can't. Yeah, when I was at Stanford, I think I took the last film photography class that they were offering. So I graduated in 2008 and it was literally like we had to find a medium format camera. So I, I took my great grandfather's camera from Germany, which had been a, a prop in my house, got it fixed up. I went out to the Stanford Dish, which is they have this like gigantic radio telescope in the middle of a field. People can hike around it. So I had a friend who actually could take me behind the fences and get close to these things. And I took a bunch of shots. You go into the dark room and it's like 30 minutes developing each shot. And then you feel like such a sense of ownership of it. It's like producing a work of art that, you know, it's hard to replicate with these iPhones where you can take 100 pictures a second. Yeah, you had to put in the work to get your product out when it came to that. Because the dark room, that the whole process of taking the film out and having to like bleach it or whatever, however that process works, I don't even know. But it just seemed very time consuming. But if you're the one doing it and you're taking the picture from start to finish, it's probably worth it. How'd you like Stanford? I liked it. It was an interesting experience for me because I went to Stanford to study physics. So I grew up on the East Coast near Washington, D.C. in Northern Virginia. So there was nowhere real close to entrepreneurship. And obviously, I'm an entrepreneur now, but I didn't expect to be an entrepreneur when I came to Stanford. So it happened by chance. And I think what's really interesting about it is Stanford gets, obviously, its share of criticism about how inclusive it is, and they're working a lot to get a bunch of different people from all sorts of backgrounds. But I think they did create a great environment where people from all over the world could get together and collaborate. I met my co-founder at Stanford. We were both in the physics department. We met a lot of people that actually ended up helping us along the way. Some of them became journalists and wrote articles about technology, and then others became investors. So it, it kind of creates this ecosystem of different groups of people. You're just in college having fun, and you never really connect the dots going forward that this is going to be helpful to you. But looking back on it, it was very helpful for me. Stanford was my dream school. I always wanted to go there. But when I didn't get in, I was like, oh, I guess it's time to be a rapper instead. <laughs> but it seems like it worked out. So you went to USC, right? Or are you still at USC? No, no, I got the check and bounced. <laughs> I had a really great time there while I was there, but it was just like, you only have so many hours in a day, you know, in between sleep, socializing, eating, working out, doing your schoolwork, going to classes, and then still trying to have another career on top of that. It didn't work out. So I just decided to go with my dream and continue with the music route. I read somewhere that when you joined USC and you wanted to study business, you wanted to become a hedge fund manager. Is that right? 
That was the plan. <laughs> you know, hedge fund managers get a bad rap these days. They do, but I didn't really, to be honest, when I said that and when I was formulating the plan, I didn't even really know 100% what a hedge fund manager did. I just knew that they managed money and that my friend's dad was a hedge fund manager and their house was really sick and they got to go on cool vacations. And I was like, yo, I could get used to that lifestyle. And growing up in San Francisco, like you get to see a lot of different careers, but that one seemed the most surefire. Like you go to school, you go to finance, you become a hedge fund manager. I don't know what the steps were in between, but I knew that I could do it and it would work if that's what I wanted to do. But one thing that kind of turned me away from that was I went and I got my ears pierced on my 15th birthday. And uh, I went over to my friend's house and they're still really close family friends. And I was talking to his dad just about my future and what I want to do after high school and stuff like that. And he was like, yo, I'm just let you know right now, if you want to go into finance, you should probably take your earrings out now and let the holes close up because you're already a black kid. Like they're looking for any reason to disqualify you. And if you have earrings that could be deemed as unprofessional or whatever. So I took them out that day and then I woke up the next day and I was like, why the fuck would I want to spend the rest of my life working a job where I can't be who I want to be? And I think that's why I'm so attracted now to music and entrepreneurship and acting in more creative pursuits. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I know exactly what you mean. Well, tell me how you made that shift from business to music. What was that like? That happened while you were at USC? I've been making music since I was 15, like since a sophomore in high school. So I was slowly building up a fan base in my local area, San Francisco, but it wasn't, San Francisco is only so big. And I realized- Yeah, your style doesn't seem very in line with San Francisco style, right? I would have guessed much more Southern California. Yeah, I mean, when you think of the Bay Area rappers, you're thinking of like- Andre Nicotina. Andre Nicotina. Ah, you know Andre Nicotina, that's cool. Yeah, Mac Dre. Exactly, all those figures. And my sound was just more hybrid because I'm an internet kid, but I'm also a real life kid. So I was taking in game from real life and the sounds around me, but I was like, well, we got all this other great music out there that I found through the internet. Why don't we try some of that stuff too? And I kind of ended up with this hybrid fusion style. So the Bay didn't fully understand where I was going at first. So I took my sound to the internet and I just started learning about digital marketing and how to promote your music and which blogs I should reach out to and things like that. And when I got to my senior year of high school, I put this song out called Ballin' Like Sharif that did, it was my best performing song so far. It, it got like 100,000 views and I was so geeked. I was like, oh my God, I finally made it. Little did I know that was just the beginning. When I went to college and I got into USC, I was like, well, I get to live in the best city that you can break in as an artist. I get to live here for free. I get to eat for free in the cafeteria. I get to learn some cool shit along the way and meet some cool people. And worst case scenario, after four years, I have a business degree from a top 20 business school. Like, seemed like a pretty good idea. But as soon as I got into campus and started promoting myself and making more music, things just started to slowly and slowly take off. I had met this producer, DA Got That Dope, who did Taste and ZZ and all these other songs. And he showed me to my current record exec now, Barry Weiss. And I remember walking out of class one day and I got this call from this random New York number. I'm like, I don't know anybody in New York. And I pick up the phone and he's like, sounds like the classic record exec. Like, hey, I'm Barry Weiss. Like, I want to sign you, kid. Well, I'm coming in on Monday. And I'm like... I'm a businessman still, so I'm like, all right, I'm not gonna sign the first deal that comes to my table. Let me take a look at it. Let me meet the team. Let me do some negotiations. And Smart. I was still 17 at that point too, so really I couldn't even sign it without getting it ratified and all that. So 
we went through a process and I ended up signing uh, a couple of days after my 18th birthday and putting out Valentino, the song that became my first hit. And when did you drop out of USC officially? Was it right around that time? So I tried to really remain like normal as long as I could. And I was like, all right, well, just because I signed, let me at least finish the year off. And I went for uh, maybe like a month and a half. I remember it was like midterms or whatever. I go to my business class. I finished the midterm in like 15 minutes, ended up getting a B plus on it. I later found out. So I'm like, all right, I guess I would have been good at business too. But I leave that class and I'm just like, so like, damn, is this really what I want to do every day? Like, I don't want to do this. I want to make music. And that was the day I think that I got my first advance check from the label. So I check my bank account. I'm like, I got $100,000 in my bank account. I'm not going to school anymore. And I just never went to class after that, really. That's a great story. Now I'm on a leave of absence, which means that I can go back at any time. I dropped out of UCLA to go into business with my co-founder. And we started a couple of companies before Robinhood. Less risky than what you did, because I had my Stanford degree from undergrad. So this was a math PhD. So the hardcore dropouts tell me that I'm not a real dropout. But I, <laughs> I still remember it was kind of a tough decision, right? I went into the department chair's office. I sat down. I was like, hey, I'm sorry. I thought I would be you know, a professional mathematician, but I'm actually not that into it. And they invited me a couple of years ago, actually, to give the math department commencement at UCLA. Oh, that's hard. Which was really fun. And so I went to dinner and we kind of reminisced about this. And he was like, I knew you were not coming back. And I was like, well, but you know, you told me I could come back whenever I want. And that actually gave me the confidence to set out and do my own thing. But yeah, I think that decision to drop out is definitely not an easy one, but helps to have 100K in, in your bank account, I guess. Looking at it now, like that sounds like a lot of money, but that can only last a couple of years, really, if you have to pay your own bills and insurance and everything like that. So I thought it was way less risky than it actually was at the time. But like you said, having that safety net, you know, having that option to come back, it's like jumping out of a plane with a parachute versus jumping out of a plane without a parachute. And it's a lot better with a parachute, I can assume. Yeah, for sure. So you're you're really big on TikTok and social media in general. How has your social media approach evolved from kind of the early days when you put your first video on YouTube and saw 100,000 views? What have you learned in those short few years? Social media changes every single day. TikTok, the way it is today, is very different than TikTok a year ago when I put out Mood. You have to stay up to date on the inside jokes, the culture, the pages that are popping. Back then, when I first put music out, it was a lot more simple. Like, there's like four pages that exist. And if you get on one of these four pages, hopefully all of them, you're pretty much guaranteed a record deal and you're out of here. There's like 10 blogs. And if you can get on half of those blogs, you can get a record deal and get out of here. Nowadays, it's like blogs don't have the same power of influence anymore. Now it's all based on like... Instagram pages like Academics and Powered on Diamonds and Our Generation. It's music streamers, like the people on YouTube that react to music videos that have the power to, to really influence and direct the large crowd of people on the internet to a particular artist. It's TikTok and is your song trendable? Is it catchy enough? Is it danceable? Is there something there that can tie in with the visual? So it's a lot more complicated than it used to be, but... It's fun. It's like a puzzle for me. Every day it changes and you got to just crack the code. Is that kind of the main channel that you like to focus on? I think you have to be everywhere. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. I'm on TikTok. I'm on YouTube. I'm on Twitch. To be the biggest 
artist in the world, which is my goal, which is what I always wanted to do, you have to be everywhere. You can't be... I think the age of the mysterious artist is kind of coming to an end. Yeah, I agree. I think the age of the mysterious financial company is also coming to an end, by the way, which is interesting. You know, over the past year, especially this year, I'd say like all of these arcane things about finance that we didn't really have to talk about. Now people are curious about them and they really want to get into the details and understand how everything works. And I think it's a great thing because it's pushing us to be more transparent. And I think it's an advantage if we figure out how to do that as a financial company, we really stand out. Because if you think about most financial companies, it's not just that they wear suits and you can't look the way you want to look. They're not really communicating to people directly. It's all very manicured and very formal and very almost legalese and arcane. And I think customers nowadays for every product, even financial products, want companies to talk to them like real people. For sure. I mean, it's like there's an infinite amount of information on the internet. So it's like we're going to find out one way or another if we try hard enough. So why don't you just be upfront and tell us in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. Tell me a little bit about what it's been like during the pandemic for you. So I guess similar to Robinhood and what I've been going through, you've really had an acceleration in your career through COVID in the past year and a half. Has that changed how you connect with your fans? How different has it been in the past year in particular? Yo, this shit was weird. I didn't even go hold you. Like, it was so weird blowing up in the pandemic because having a song like Mood take off the way it did, that's life-changing enough. And going through a global pandemic, that's life-changing enough. But when you put the two together at the same time, it's really a mind fuck. I'm in the house and my phone tells me that there's... Three million people listening to my song every single day and that I have the biggest song in the world. But my reality is telling me that, yo, I'm just playing fucking Xbox and doing the same shit that I was doing for the last year. So what's real and what's not? And that was kind of a a hard thing to grasp. Yeah, no, I completely agree. In a sense, it makes it easier to do things, right? You realize how much stuff you could do without leaving your house. Probably if this had happened in 2018 or something, you would have been flying around everywhere. You've been going to New York, going to Europe. But now it makes you think about how much of that is actually necessary. If you can have a number one song and you never even have to leave your living room, right? But I don't know, because I think a part of the reason why the song was so successful is because, like you said, you're able to do a lot more interviews. You're able to do a lot more radio liners because everything is all on Zoom. But the mental health aspect of being in front of your computer, repeating the same information 20 times, that took a real toll on me because I didn't become an artist to sit in front of my computer and tell the same story over and over again. I did it to see the world, to meet new people, to communicate a message. And just that repetition, it felt like I was trapped. So. And maybe if it happened in 2018, maybe it wouldn't have been as big or as big as it was for as long. Yeah. But I think I might have appreciated the experience of it a little bit more. I appreciated the fuck out of it now, but yeah. I think if I got to travel more and experience what it's like to be outside when your song is going that crazy, that would have been pretty dope. But it's not my last hit. Yeah, no, you'll get that, I'm sure. You're probably looking forward to things getting back to in-person and doing a little bit more travel, probably. Hell yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, 
Let's talk a little bit about San Francisco. You grew up in San Francisco, obviously one of the wealthiest cities in America. I'm 45 minutes away from San Francisco down in Menlo Park. You talked a little bit about this earlier, but you were seeing a lot of the wealth, but not being able to experience it directly. Can you talk a little bit about that and maybe how your upbringing shapes your perspective now on wealth and wealth inequality? I mean, yeah, my parents worked their ass off to make sure that me and my sister always had a roof over our head and food on the table. So I didn't even realize that we weren't making that much money until I got older, you know, and I'm like seeing my other friends' situations. Because when you're a kid, you're not thinking about money, you're just thinking about having a good time. And then when I'm getting older, I'm like, oh, that kid has a pair of $180 shoes on. Mom, can I get those shoes? No, we can't afford them. Oh, all right, well... There's different situations going on here, you know? And I think being able to see people with money and how they're living and the type of experiences they get to have was a big motivating factor in my hunger for success. Because don't get me wrong, my parents, they gave me a great childhood, probably a way better childhood than most people that have a lot of money. But it was just like, I don't know, it just drove a hunger in me because I was like, I see that this is possible. I see that other people have achieved this and they live in the same place that I do. So I can do the same exact thing. And that was always a big factor for me getting interested in investing and, and learning how to make money and how to manage money and not go broke from a young age. When did you first become interested in investing? I would say fifth grade because I had got this commercial for a Toyota or something like that, like Toyota winter sale. And I think I made about $15,000, which for a fifth grader is an unfathomable amount of money. Like, you know how many jelly beans you could buy for $15,000? A lot of jelly beans. A lot of jelly beans. So my dad, he had put me on and he said, hey, what you should do is you should invest this money. And he set me up with, I think at the time it was called Scott Trade before I got bought by TD Ameritrade. But Scott Trade, he set me up with a custodial account and he said, here's some good stocks. You know, this is different companies. What do you want to buy? And I ended up buying some Apple. I was getting some, I don't even remember what I was getting back then, but Apple, like McDonald's, some dividend stocks, stuff like that. And we would wake up in the mornings and we'd check it out a couple times a week. And I was just sick as fuck seeing like, yo, this was... I had $1,000 in here now, and now it's $1,500. And I didn't even have to do anything. I just went to school and did math all day, and I was making money. And from that point on, I was hooked. Yeah, and what about crypto? How did that get on your radar? Man, so when I was like 10 years old, my cousin, he was four years older than me. We were at like a family reunion type of vibe. And he was telling me and my mom and my dad and my sister about like Bitcoin, like, yo, they invented this new thing and like you have to mine it. And I'm 10, so I don't really understand fully, but I vividly remember him telling me about it. That was very early. That was like, what, 2010? Yeah. The year after it was created, right? 2010, really. He was so early on it. And I remember telling my dad, like, yo, you should buy some of that. See what happens. And he was like, oh, yeah, maybe. But it was hard to buy back then. Yeah, it was hard to buy and easy to forget about. So I forgot about it for a while. And then I was in high school, maybe back in 2016, 2017. This dude at the studio I would go to, one of the first studios I would go to, he was 
a big advocate of crypto and he was just telling us, yo, buy all the Ethereum you can get, buy all the Litecoin you can get. Bitcoin's a little expensive. This was when it was a couple thousand dollars maybe. Well, tell me a little bit about financial literacy. I think you've spoken a little bit about this before, specifically as it pertains to underserved communities. What do you think improving financial literacy in underserved communities looks like at large scale? And what role do you think you want to play? And what kind of changes do you think you'd like to see there? I think that in those underserved communities, there's not, if you don't know what financial literacy is in the first place, then you don't know where to go to look for it and to learn for it. And there's resources out there already, but I think there needs to be a real community outreach effort, you know, to go into schools and churches and community centers and places like that in those communities and have workshops and have seminars and teach the parents, teach the kids. Because even if you're getting street money or whatever, most of the people that are, they're just going to blow it anyways. And it's like, you could take that and, and use that as a step up to being able to have a legal business. You're not trapping to be broke, you're trapping to get rich. So how come you don't got no money? And I just think that there needs to be a real concentrated effort on bringing the information to the people rather than trying to get the people to come to the information. And me, personally, I would love to be the one to raise awareness around that and go into these different communities and just put my face attached to it To if it's going to bring people in. Go to these communities and be a part of the seminars and talk to kids about, yo, these are the five rules for finance or, or put some type of curriculum together to teach kids in schools or something like I think there's a lot of ways to solve the problem it's just about taking action I'm sure a lot of young people ask you for advice here what would you tell someone who's young and obviously interested in improving their financial well-being where do you point them to how do you tell them to start I think budgeting is a huge thing because you know you might be a, a young person you just got your first job and you're like oh I'm getting 15 bucks an hour, let's say, and you're working 40 hours a week. Do I need to pull out a calculator for that? Yeah. $600. Wow. Genius. Math genius. This is what happens when you drop out of college, kids. That's that PhD, <laughs> that master's degree, putting to work there. So you're getting $600 a week, right? And they're like, whoa, that's a new pair of Jordans. That's a bait hoodie. I'm out of here, right? But you don't realize, all right, first of all, you're going to have to pay a certain amount in taxes. You're going to have to pay a certain amount of Social Security. So your check might end up looking like only $400, $350 at the end of the day. And out of that $350, if you have a car, you need gas. You need to pay for this and that. And people oftentimes overextend themselves or buy things that they don't need that don't hold value just for temporary pleasures. And I would say like having the self-discipline to budget your money out and put your money towards things that are gonna continue to make money for you or just saving it because it's never bad to sit on cash. You save your money, it's gonna save you. That's the first step, having money to make money in the first place and not spending all your money. Do you feel like technology, you're kind of seeing it in real time change the way that people think about their finances? And I'm just curious, do you feel like there's a big change from when you talk about people that are maybe a little bit older from previous generations and how they think about their money from people in your generation or even younger? Do you see a huge dichotomy there? A hundred percent. I mean, there's older people that keep all the money under the mattress because they don't trust the banks. And here we have Gen Z out here spending money on virtual tokens that you can't even see and just rocking out with it. So I think we're definitely heading in a positive trend in terms of overall general financial literacy, but it's just getting the information to the people that don't 
have that on their mind in the first place. And that's where the key is. Because I feel like every kid that's over 18 now has got Robin Hood or Coinbase or something like that, even if they're not seriously investing, just to check it out, just to play with. Yeah, no, those tools weren't around even when I was growing up. I mean, you could have an E-Trade account, but it didn't really work particularly well on your phone. So you didn't end up using it that much. Didn't look that cool. Yeah, and people were a little bit reluctant actually to do their finances on their phone. People were like, you know, am I gonna actually put my bank account information on my phone? I, I would never do that. And I think when we were getting started, that was very much the thinking. And now it's like, if your financial product doesn't feel and look great on your phone, you're just not gonna use it and you're gonna look for something else. Facts, yeah, that shift happened. Around what time do you think that shift happened? I think it happened, well, so I think the first one was probably Venmo. I remember using Venmo probably like 2011 when it first got started and there weren't that many people on it, but that was, I think the first consumer finance service on mobile that really was probably 10 times better than anything else on web. Robinhood started in 2015. Then you had Coinbase, Cash App, obviously. So I'd say if you look at Google Trends for fintech, this is kind of an interesting thing because people think that the word fintech has been around for a long time. But if you Google Trends it, it basically started in 2015. And then you see just like an acceleration through 2020 and 2021. So I would put it at 2015. I think fintech and mobile finance go pretty hand in hand and they happened at pretty much the same time. Yeah. What do you have in the hopper that you're pretty excited about? And what are you spending most of your time on now? I mean, now it's music, music, music. I've been in the studio every day just working on uh, making new songs for the deluxe version of my album, El Dorado. Want to put another six or seven on there, feed the people. And then tour. I'm really excited to be back outside. I'm about to do uh, my El Dorado tour in November and start doing all these festivals. Outside Lands, Governor's Ball, Summer Smash, all these different festivals in the summer. So it should be a good rest of the year. There were probably no festivals really in 2020, right? So this is going to be your first set of gigantic festivals? Oh, yeah. In 2020, yeah. Because I've done Rolling Loud and stuff like that before. But this is really the first real festival run. That's exciting. And tell me, have you started, I mean, recognizing I didn't really think about my legacy until I was like 23 at least. But... Are you thinking about these things, like what your legacy is going to be, how you hope to shape it? I mean, I've already made history for where I'm from. I'm literally the biggest artist. To, I, I don't. People are going to get mad if I say it. I'm literally the biggest artist to ever come out of the Bay Area. I'm sorry. I had to say it. I had the biggest song out of the Bay. But now it's like, now that I accomplished that, there was a period of time where it's like, well, what the fuck do I do now? Like, I feel like I, I kind of beat the game early. And now it's like... Do I just watch the credits? Is there like an after scene or whatever? But now it's just to make impact, which is what I came in the game to do in the first place. Not to break records on the charts, but I came to make impact, whether it's through music, through my acting, through any other forms of art, like fashion, with my philanthropy. That's what I'm here to do for the rest of my life. And just leave a little mark on the world that, that made it a better place. Cool. Well, I'll close on one question. Robinhood's missions to democratize finance for all. And just curious what that means to you when you hear democratize finance for all, what comes to mind? 
I think that when we think of the traditional financial institutions like banks, insurance companies, and things like that, there's a history of discrimination or lack of transparency. And that's what really needs to be solved, you know, a way that everybody can have access to the same financial tools and have equal opportunities to grow their money and learn how to grow their money. Yeah. Well, that's something I feel very passionately about. One of our values is participation is power. And it's actually our oldest value. If you look back on our website from 2013, we had that on there. And it's evolved a little bit over time. It just means that wealthier customers shouldn't get a better deal than normal people, ordinary folks. And everyone should get the same deal regardless of what their account balance is, how much money they have. Yeah. That really resonates with me, yo. Give everybody a chance to get some bread. This has been an episode of Under the Hood. Under the Hood is produced by Sound Made Public. Original music by Eric Zeeler and Blue Dot Sessions. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to Under the Hood on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be well. The opinions expressed are those of the guest speaker and not necessarily those of Robinhood or its affiliates. The podcast is provided for informational purposes and not a recommendation of any security or investment strategy. All investments involve risk and loss of principal is possible. Robinhood is not affiliated with the guests or their companies. The preceding investing experiences are unique to the individual. Your results will differ. Robinhood Financial LLC member SIPC is a registered broker dealer. Robinhood Securities, LLC, member SIPC, provides brokerage clearing services. Robinhood Crypto, LLC, provides cryptocurrency trading. All are subsidiaries of Robinhood Markets, Inc., 